Hey everyone, my name is Jeff Oaks, one of the pastors on staff here at Reunion. I'm glad to share this message with you today. Do any of you have a nickname, something that you've been called that's not your given name that you've acquired over the years? It's kind of funny how these develop and stick with us, right? When I was in college, I worked one summer as a welder at a company in my hometown. It was the night shift. 11 p.m. to 8 a.m., rough time to be working with smoldering hot metal. I burned myself countless times. My coworkers were pretty rough, too. They swore like sailors, they smoked like chimneys, and they did not suffer fools. The longest tenured worker on our shift had an employee number in the single digits. He had been there forever. And I don't remember his name. That's because I never actually heard anyone call him by his name. Everyone called him Fingers. That's because nearly every one of his 10 digits had been broken over the years in one of the welding presses. His fingers looked like the branches of a small tree. They went every which way. <laughs> fingers. That was a well-earned nickname. Not necessarily how you want to be known amongst your coworkers on the welding line, but it stuck. I've been given several nicknames in my own life. You know, my grandpa used to call me Stretch for obvious reasons. My basketball teammates in high school called me Spider. Some upperclassmen used to call me Spokes. I hated that. They were all references to the fact that I was tall and skinny. How skinny, you might ask? <laughs> well, my driver's license when I turned 16 listed my height as six a six foot one, and my weight is 130 pounds. I really was a spoke. But it's not how I wanted to be thought of by my peers. I was really glad that nickname didn't stay with me after high school. And I have to think it's a bit annoying to have a nickname that described you as a teenager following you around and into your adulthood. I actually played basketball with a group of local guys, and one of them is known exclusively as Bones. It's the nickname he received clear back when he was a skin and bones high schooler. But he's nearly 50 now, and he is definitely not skin and bones anymore. It's unfortunate to be labeled as something you don't want to be known for, right? Author Haruki Murakami expresses it this way. It's like my identity is an orbit that I have strayed far away from, and I can relate to that. I don't want my identity to be tied to a version of myself from the past, because there have been versions of me that I would really prefer to leave behind. Is that true for any of you? I'm not just talking about the physical traits I've been known for. I think this runs a lot deeper than that. I'm not the same person I was in high school. Not just in stature, but in maturity and wisdom and character. And that's true about me from college and from my 20s and my 30s. And it'll be true when I leave my 40s into my 50s. What happens when you change and grow and mature? Isn't it true that we all want the old versions of ourselves to be discarded and forgotten so that the new and improved with all that remains? Haven't you ever wanted to shed an old identity, an old label, an old version of yourself and start new and fresh? 
If that sounds appealing but seems impossible, I want you to know it's not only possible, it's achievable for all of us. Over the last four weeks, we've been in a series of messages called Sacred. And the underlying idea for the series is, is that there are these moments and practices and traditions within our faith that are sacred. They've been set apart for a deeper purpose, imbued with a greater meaning than might be apparent on the surface. And during the series, we've learned that everything that belongs to God is sacred. That's a long list. It includes you and me and every other human being walking the planet. We've also learned something as ordinary as bread and wine becomes sacred as an act of remembrance and self-evaluation. That's when it becomes communion. Last week, we discovered that the community of faith is sacred to God. The church, not, not the building or the meeting place, but the people, we've been set apart with a purpose. Our fellowship is sacred. And today, as we conclude this series, I want us to learn how a simple act of humility allows us to shed our old self and put on a completely new identity. And it's the act of being completely immersed in water. Something as ordinary as this can be set apart for God's greater purpose. I'm speaking about the sacred act of baptism. Baptism is sacred because Jesus ordained it at the Great Commission. And he said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the practice of being lowered into the water and brought back up again was something that he himself participated in. But the reason why baptism is sacred concerns something far greater than merely imitating Jesus' immersion by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Now, some of us are familiar with baptism because we've been baptized ourselves. And some of you might be unfamiliar. This might be a foreign concept to you. But to help us all grow in our understanding, we're going to take a look in Scripture at the book of Romans, beginning in chapter 6. Now, just for some context here, the Apostle Paul wrote this book. And some believe that it was to be given as part of his legal testimony when he appealed to Caesar in order to to avoid being executed as a heretic by the Israelite leaders of his day. Paul had actually once been one of them, but an encounter with Jesus changed his life completely and compelled him to share about it at any cost. And he paid a great cost. He was beaten and jailed and insulted and nearly stoned to death, which is where they lob rocks at you until you die. It must have been so incapacitated, they left him for dead, but he wasn't, and he persisted in proclaiming the good news about Jesus. Now, Paul was a Roman citizen, which gave him certain rights at that time, which included the right to be tried in Rome. And so in the first five chapters of this book, we see Paul walking through his defense for Jesus as Savior and going into great detail, explaining the nature of the gospel. When we arrive at chapter 6, I believe we see the culmination of Paul's case 
for the transforming power of God's grace. And significantly, he speaks about baptism. Let's start in verse 3. Paul writes, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in resurrection like his. Let's start with this question of who Paul is actually talking about here. He's talking about his fellow followers of Jesus, and he describes them as those of us who were baptized into Christ. For Paul, baptism was a hugely significant thing. He actually describes it with the same degree of importance as an exchange of wedding rings. As we know, it's one thing to fall in love, but it's another to publicly commit yourself fully to another person, right? That's how Paul saw baptism. Notice when Paul talks about baptism, he's not talking about an exercise for super Christians. This isn't just for the elite or the overachievers. No, he's talking about everyone who's truly given their life to Jesus. What does he say is true of these people? Look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in resurrection like his. We have been united to Jesus. We're united to him. That word in the Greek is a horticultural term. It's a strange word, actually. It means to be grafted in at the root. Grafted in at the roots, not up here in the head, right? There are other places in Scripture that talk about that concept, too. But when referring to baptism, Paul says we've been grafted in at the roots. We've been inserted into the heart of Jesus' life. And what does that mean? Well, look again at verse 5. In baptism, we are united, grafted into the past and the future of Jesus. Jesus' past is now our past. Jesus' future is now our future. That's what the verse is saying. And just to help us understand this a little bit better, let's talk about this. First, it says we've been united in his death, which, to be honest, sounds a little morbid maybe even a bit unappealing. I mean, how is being united in Jesus' death a good thing? It's not so much a good thing as a necessary thing. This lowering into the water, it's an opportunity to unite ourselves with Jesus' death, which is a way of understanding the gravity of our sin and disobedience. Our sin is so costly that God's perfect son was crucified on a cross and died. That was the only sufficient remedy. If Jesus doesn't die, we are hopelessly stuck with the consequences of our sin. So when we are buried under the water, we're buried just as Jesus was buried. Now, if we stayed there, that would be a bit problematic. (laughs) 
Instead, you're raised up out of the water, just as Jesus was raised from death to life. Baptism is an opportunity to identify with the death and resurrection of Jesus. In Colossians 3, which is a, another letter that Paul wrote, there's this place where he goes into this concept just a little bit more succinctly. He says, you have been raised with Christ, so set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not only on earthly things, where you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You died in him. You were raised in him. Okay, but then it says seated at the right hand of God with him. I and mean, what does that mean? It's incredible, really. Imagine just for a second that a person becomes rich through their hard work and smart choices. They put in some enormous effort. They've made great decisions and it pays off and they become wealthy. Now imagine this person chooses to get married. How do all of those riches come to their spouse? Through that legal union, you could say, by grace. One person has done all the hard work to bring about all that wealth. The other person just get, gets married. You know, that, that legal union equals grace. You know, hold that thought. Now let's go back to Paul's explanation. Why is Jesus at the right hand of the Father? That is a place of distinction. That's where you put the guest of honor, the returning champion who won the war and defeated the enemy. Why is Jesus at the right hand of the Father? That's what he's accomplished. I mean, look at his life. Look at the nobility and the greatness and the courage that he has shown in all that he's done. Jesus, a sinless, blameless man, son of God, with all the rights and privileges that go with that lineage, humbled himself, submitted himself to a cruel death as an act of love and mercy for you and for me. And then he raised to life. He defeated sin and death. God the Father looks at his son and his heart literally bursts with delight about him. The Father exalts his son. Of course he does. Because Jesus has earned that recognition. Where does that leave us? This text is saying everything Jesus has done, all he's accomplished, is now legally true of you. The determining factor in your relationship with God is no longer your past, but Jesus' past. God accepts you. He delights in you, welcomes you, the place of honor in which you now stand because he sees you as having all of the beauty and greatness and glory of his son, Jesus. That's an incredible exchange, right? What signifies the transference from the old to the new? Baptism. This is why it's so important that Jesus made it sacred. Paul is showing us that in baptism, God sees you as free from condemnation and the guilt of your sins, as if you had died yourself 
and paid the penalty that those sins require. We are united to Jesus' past. But notice, we are also united to Jesus' future. All right, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Did you notice that word, certainly? The text doesn't say conditionally or or maybe we will. You know, if you lead a good life, you come to church every week, you take good notes on Jeff's sermon, then maybe we'll see what happens. It doesn't say anything like that. It says we will certainly also be united with Jesus in resurrection like his. That's the inextricable link that develops in your faith and your baptism between you and Jesus' future. What does that mean? Help us out. I want us to to look at a, a really unique word in Scripture. It's not in our text, but I think it really informs our text. And it only shows up twice in all of the Bible. It's a philosophical term, the Greek word palingenesia. Try to say that three times real fast. <laughs> did, did you notice, though, when I said it, the word genesis in there, palingenesia? The word actually means the rebirth of the cosmos. In Matthew 19, Jesus uses this word, palingenesia, when he says in verse 28, at the palingenesia, which is usually translated at the renewal of all things. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, everyone who has lost houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and eternal life. Many who are first will become last and the last will become first. Jesus is saying there will be this rebirth of the cosmos. There is a single point toward which all of human history is flowing. On that day, everything will become new in fullness and in wholeness. When Jesus sits on his glorious throne, all creation will be reborn. History itself will be changed. (laughs) That's an amazing thought, right? I'll tell you what's even more amazing. That word, shows up just one more time in all of Scripture. Paul uses it in a letter that he's writing to a friend of his named Titus. In chapter 3, verse 5, he says, writing about our salvation, he says, Jesus saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Did you catch the word? It's that phrase, washing of rebirth. That's the second and final time that palingenesia is used in all of Scripture. And at first glance, it's used in totally the wrong context. Palingenesia is about cosmic rebirth, right? Universe transforming, not personal salvation. And so why is Paul describing it this way? I, I think it's really cool. He's telling us when you place your faith in Jesus, when you are baptized, the power of that future transcendence, 
the life-giving power that will ultimately rebirth the cosmos comes into your life, begins to work right now. Baptism isn't merely a get-out-of-jail-free card for someday when you die. We haven't just been pardoned. We have been united to everything in Jesus' past and everything that's in Jesus' future. That is incredible. That is something truly sacred. So let me ask you a pretty challenging question. And if you've never placed your trust in Christ, then I got to ask you, you what is it that you might hope to receive from him? Or if you have already come to Christ, what what did you hope to receive when you made that decision? Honestly, maybe you've got modest hopes for that, right? A little inner peace, a little life reorientation. Maybe you wanted a sense of meaning or a feeling that your life matters. Some of us simply want some inspiration, right? I don't know if you figured this out yet. There is so much more to it than that. Help me me understand this. I love this passage from Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. For me, This story he tells has been a life-shaping idea that helps me understand this concept. He writes this. He says, imagine yourself as a house. God comes in to rebuild it. Now, at first, you can understand what he's doing. It's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. It does not seem to make sense. What is he up to? The answer is he's throwing out a new wing over here and he's putting in an extra floor over there and he's running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come live in it himself. If we let him, he will make the feeblest wisdom, so the feeblest and filthiest of us, into dazzling, radiant, mortal creatures, pulsating all three with such energy and joy and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror, which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts painful, But that is what we are in for, nothing less. Baptism means union with Christ. That is a complete transformation of your life. Maybe that's a step you've been contemplating recently. So I want to suggest something to you today. Get rid of your low expectations on it. Get rid of all your expectations. I think people who are approaching this step often think to themselves, you know, if I place my faith in Jesus, will I have to stop doing that? Or will I still be able to do this? Anticipate that your expectations will be far exceeded. The magnitude of the changes that 
will occur are going to be beyond your ability to anticipate. When they come, you will be so grateful for them. They'll be far more than what you could ever dare think or ask. So how do we begin? Based on what we've learned from Paul, what is required from us? Firstly, if you've never taken that simple but profound step of walking into the water and allowing yourself to be united with Jesus in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, I want you to consider baptism. On June 26th, we're going to have a day at the beach as a church, which is exciting. Woo! But we also want to extend that day as an opportunity for you to be baptized. Dying to an old self, raising to new life in Jesus. Take that step of faith. It is a beautiful, sacred experience. If you want to know more about that, I hope that you'll please connect with me. Send me an email at jeff at reunionboston.com, and let's chat about that this week. Now, for those of you who have already taken that step, I want you to join us on the 26th, and let's celebrate and be reminded again of the beauty and the significance of baptism. Let it reawaken the passion and the joy of being united with Jesus. But don't stop there. Because here's what I believe that we should be considering in light of what Paul has taught us. We have to continue learning to live out this new identity that God has given us. In the remaining verses of Romans 6 and verses 6 and 7 of chapter 6, he writes, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. We should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. When we place our faith in Jesus, we chose to be baptized. We're no longer the same person. Our former self, our self has been done away with, and our old identity has been crucified with Jesus. Paul refers to all that in the past tense. The old way we once were known is done, finished. Why is that? What's the purpose behind all that transformation? Paul says, so that our former body ruled by sin might be done away with. Now, that doesn't mean that your physical body is sinful and needs to be discarded. That would be impossible. What Paul is trying to convey here is that all of you, including your body, been under the same spiritual condition of being mastered by sin. He's referencing our lives, our actions. Paul is using the concept of our bodies to join all of this together. And he's saying, through Jesus, you have been given a new identity. You have the ability to break the mastery of sin, no longer enslaved by it any longer. That old self with its nicknames and labels no longer defines who you are. So live into your new self. You belong to God. Live set apart for him. Participate in communion in the fellowship of the church. This is how you keep the power of the gospel living and active in your life. Now, I've come to recognize for myself, my identity 
sometimes a burden I want to escape. Sometimes it's an idle security blanket that I want to cling to. So today I'm asking you to begin thinking of yourself first and foremost as one who belongs to Christ above all else. Aware of your own sin, forgiven of more than you even know, equipped with the belief that no matter how dark things get, nothing is as hopeless as it seems. No one is beyond the grace of Jesus, certainly not you. One of the most freeing and satisfying gifts that God has given us is the gift of knowing before we are beholden to any identity of our own, we belong to him, united with Jesus by his grace. That is sacred. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a chance today to consider what it means to be rooted into you, to be planted into the heart of Jesus. Baptism unites us with you. It's such a beautiful thing because the exchange is phenomenal. We exchange our old self with all its brokenness and sin. In return, we're clothed with, with Christ, with his perfection, with his glory his beauty. I can't comprehend the kind of grace that it's taken to, to give us that gift. I'm so grateful for it. I pray that I would never take it for granted. I pray that for each of us, this reminder of being lowered into the water, dying to an old self, raised to a new life, will keep us growing and maturing in our faith, but living into the new self that you've called us toward. That's my prayer for all of us, Father. And I ask that your Holy Spirit begin working that out in each of us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.